Well, if you were like most Americans uh, during the, the last few months, on several evenings in a row on NBC, you were able to go home and turn on the TV and watch something that has been going on for a very long time. Of course, I'm talking about the Olympic Games. And I, I, I saw people watching it on their phones, on their computers, everywhere you went. People were watching the Olympics, talking about the Olympics. And as I watched, I am always amazed at the abilities of these athletes. One of my favorite ones to watch this year was the ski jump. And these people put on these skis, and they look like they're about 20 feet long when they're, when they're on. And they're, they're huge, and they get up at the top of this ramp, and they go straight down this very steep ramp. And I don't know how fast they're going, but they launch themselves into the air. And you, you watch them, and their, their skis are almost touching their face as they're, as they're flying through the air, holding themselves completely still, trying to get every inch out of that jump. And then they gently glide down and land. And you're like, how did they do that? Did they show up one day at tryouts for the Olympic team and say, you know what? I've never done this before, but hey, it looks pretty easy. Let me get in these skis right here. And no, of course they didn't do that. They worked for a very long time and they, they probably started on a, a five foot jump over water or something, something that wouldn't hurt too badly. And they, they tried that. And then once they had mastered that, then they maybe moved up to a 20-foot jump. And then a little bit higher and a little bit higher. And finally, they were ready for that big, big jump. It was lots of progressive steps, one little bitty step at a time, and lots of repetition as they practiced in order to get to that point where they were ready to jump off that big jump. That type of progression makes sense to us. We understand progression and repetition when it comes to learning something. The musicians that, that stood up here today and, and played, these guys right here on the front row that did such an amazing job, they didn't just get together last night and say, you know what, we, we probably ought to think about what we want to play. They practiced and they, they prayed and they, they thought about what they were going to do and they looked at the music that had been written for them to be able to play together. And they came together after many, many steps along the way to get there. And we can understand those common sense steps in the natural, but God's plan looks like that in the Bible as well. Uh, a couple of years ago, I, I, I preached, and I don't even remember it, so I'm not expecting you to, but I preached about the progression of the calling of the apostles and the... Uh, the fact that Peter and Andrew were called on three separate occasions. Jesus first called them when they were, were on land in a kind of a safe place. Then later, in another place, they were out in the shallows of the water, and he calls them again. And then still a third time, he calls them and they go out deep into the ocean. There was a progression. The first time that Jesus called them, they were probably interested, intrigued, wanted to learn a little more. Then at that second calling, they were a little more committed. And then at that third calling, that calling into the deep, they were all in. They were completely committed to Jesus at that point. We all have opportunities to progress with God. If you look at the, the process of, of sanctification or being more like Jesus, that's a process that lasts our entire lives. We don't get saved and all of a sudden, woohoo, we're perfect, we're ready to go. We have to work on it day, day by day by day as we grow with Him. 
If you were saved in a church, I want you to just close your eyes for a moment and think back on that day. For me, I was 12 years old. It was 1982. I was in the seventh grade. And I had made the decision that I was going to give my life to Jesus that morning at church. I remember the song that was being sung as the invitation song. It was God is calling the prodigal. And I got up with my father and my grandfather and I walked down to the front of the church and I was there to dedicate my life. Now, something happened at that moment. They gave me a little card and asked me to fill it out. And most of the information was just name and address and why have you come today? What's your, what's your intention? And so it was an opportunity for me to write down what my commitment was. And it was that very first step of saying, this is why I've come today. But I've often wondered, you know, what would happen if we had a card like the one that's up on the screen right now? Now, date, name, address, city, state, zip, children, dates you're willing to preach, topic of first sermon, preferred night to conduct a small group Bible study, number of hours available for visitation and evangelism, and percent of income you're willing to give over and above your tithe. Most people would probably run out the door. You don't, you don't go to commit your life to Jesus the very first day and all of a sudden know the answers to any of these questions. It's a progression. Not to say that people who give their life to Christ won't eventually do some of these things, but it's not the thing that you're ready to do at that very first moment. There's a progression. And we understand that progression. We understand that from a biblical perspective and from a common sense perspective. We want to depend on God for all of those big moments in life. You've, you've got a job opportunity that you're praying about, or maybe it's an opportunity to move or to, uh, to whether or not to have children or whatever the case may be. And we depend on God in those big situations, but so many times we haven't been depending upon him in all the little situations all along the way. And so we don't even know what his voice sounds like in those big moments and those important times of decision. Jesus walked on the earth for a very short time, comparably to the rest of the, the time of all history. But when he was on the earth, he spoke to the people that were following him, and he promised that a counselor would be coming after him. If we look in John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17, it says that I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate or counselor to help you and be with you forever. Verse 17, the spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. So Jesus is promising that there's going to be a counselor. The word that is there for uh, advocate in the Greek, it was paraclete, not parakeet. It's not a bird. He's promising a paraclete is a counselor, someone there that is to guide and to, to give instruction. So I, I was thinking about uh, about counselors that I have come in contact with in my lifetime and people that I've known in roles of a counselor. And the, the first one that came to mind was an easy one. It was a camp counselor. Uh, my wife and I had the, the distinct privilege of, of running a church camp for four years. Uh, we also worked at that same camp uh, a couple of years before that on staff. Uh, I had worked at Valley View Camp up in uh, Greenbrier, Tennessee for six years. My wife had spent five years at a YMCA camp. So we like camp. It's, it's kind of something that we enjoy. And so as we were running this camp, we had camp counselors that were a part of our staff. And the camp counselor's job was to take care of the children. 
to get them up in the morning, make sure that they're dressed, to get them to their meals on time, to make sure that they actually eat. You know, something happens when kids go away from their parents. Sometimes, I'm not talking about your kids because I'm sure they're not this way, but sometimes kids don't do what their parents want them to do when they're not around. I know that's, that's not your kids, certainly not mine, but sometimes kids don't do what they're supposed to do. And so the camp counselor is kind of filling in as the parent, protecting them, trying to make sure that they have a safe and enjoyable time. They're giving them assurance, assurance of safety, assurance of love. They are taking the part of the parent for that very short time. We took this very seriously at our camp. We felt that it was the place that they should feel safety. Many of the kids that came to our camp were coming from inner city Cleveland or Toledo or Youngstown or places where they live in fear a good bit of the time. They're in fear of school. They're in fear of walking down the street. And we wanted to make sure that there was never anything that caused them fear. So we told our staff very, very upfront, very matter-of-factly at the very beginning during orientation, if you do anything to make a child feel fearful or feel like that they're not being taken care of, your days here will be ended that moment. And that was something that we just felt very strongly about. We didn't want them to ever have that moment of, of hearing a scary story that kept them from being able to sleep. Scary stories are okay, but camp's not the place for those. That wasn't the time for them to be worried about what was going on around them. So that camp counselor was there to give comfort and assurance of love. The second type of counselor that I was thinking about is uh, an AA sponsor. When we worked with the Salvation Army, there was a, a, a system called the Adult Rehabilitation Centers, the ARC. And they um, ministered to people who were struggling with addiction. And they didn't follow the exact 12 steps in the AA process, but it was very similar. But there was something that I came to know about through that, and that was the sponsorship that happens in that program. And that person is there, is a, is a person that a, a, someone can reach out to when they're struggling. And that counselor can then say... Remind them, you know, there's, there's consequences. There's going to be something bad that happens if you take this next step, if you make this wrong decision. And so the purpose of that kind of counselor is to, to kind of keep them on the, the right road, to, to, to nudge them back into the center. If they start to, to veer off over here, to move them back into the center. And that type of counselor is there to help guide them. The next kind of counselor... That, uh, that you think about is marriage counselors. Marriage counselors are people who are arbitrators, I guess. <laughs> Husband and wife are having a little bit of a difficulty, and they come to a marriage counselor. And, and it's not that the marriage counselor is some super married person that knows all the answers. They're the type of person that can bring a different perspective. Husband has one opinion, wife has a different opinion, and the their two aren't going to be able to see eye to eye no matter how hard they try. But the marriage counselor is able to point them to truth, is able to look at it from a different perspective, to take a few steps back and say, Bob, I see you have this opinion. Sue, I see you have this opinion. This is how you guys could get together on the same page. And brings a point of, of commonality and points them to a truth that they wouldn't be able to see otherwise. And so that's another type of counselor. The fourth type, and this isn't something I've had personal experience with, but it's the president's cabinet. The President of the United States has a cabinet of people, Secretaries of State, Secretary of Defense, and so forth, that is around him at all times that is helping him to have the information that he needs in order to make good decisions. I don't envy the position that our President is in. I would not want to have that type of power or decision-making uh, on my shoulders. 
I can only imagine the burden that he has day after day of leading this country. And so he depends upon people to give him information and to provide him guidance and wisdom as he's making decisions. And so here you have four completely different types of, of counselors that are here in the natural world. But we see all of these types of counselors wrapped up into the one Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit came to us as a counselor in order for us to be able to receive these different types of help. So the first one is the function of assuring us of God's love. And if we look in Romans 8, verses 16 through 17, it reads as follows. I want to stay on verse 16 for a few moments. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. You guys are too asleep. We are God's children. We, you, me, us, the people in this room, are children of the one almighty, true God, the King of all kings. We're his kids. That's pretty amazing. We are his kids. The verse keeps on going and it gets even better in verse 17. It says, now if we are children, then we are heirs. How would you like to be an heir to the person who created all things in this earth? That's pretty amazing. As I was making this point in the first service, I didn't even think about this part of it. But someone came up to me afterwards and said, you know, you talked about being an heir and receiving an inheritance. He said, I've received an inheritance and it was only received because that someone died and there was grieving and there was death. And I had not thought about that. I was only thinking, you know, ooh, an inheritance, that would be great. I said, it was okay, but the, the part that was so sad was the fact that I had to lose someone. And she said, I was so taken with the fact that we don't face that sadness in order to be this heir. Jesus was the one. Jesus was the one who came and lived on this earth and suffered and died. It was his death. It was the father's mourning over his son that enabled us to be heirs. And it said, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. There's not, you know, you're a cousin, he's the son. We're all children of God. We're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. How awesome is that? Yeah, we do have to share in the sufferings. There's times when things happen that aren't fair. There's times when things that happen that, that I wouldn't have chosen for my life. But who suffered more injustice in this world, me or Jesus? Jesus Christ never did anything wrong, and yet he suffered humiliation. He suffered the same sorts of, of punishment that you would expect from a, the worst criminal out there. He faced all of those injustices so that we could all share in glory. So we are assured by God's love through the Holy Spirit. We can take comfort in these words. When Gail and I um, had uh, been married, gosh, it would have been 13 years. Get it right? We would have been married 13 years. We had been wanting to adopt a child. We went through foster care training. Uh, we went through all the classes. We had our home inspection. Then we moved and we had to have another home inspection. We had all of these things ready to go. And we waited and we waited and we waited and we waited some more. 
And finally, after about two years, we were beginning to think that perhaps that call would never come that we were going to actually be able to uh, do foster care. And we really wanted to do that. And so we were uh, traveling. We had traveled from Ohio down to Dallas, Texas. We arrived one, late one afternoon, uh, went to bed that night, got up the next morning, just thought we were going to be there for this conference that was going to take place for several days. And I got a phone call. We were busy that morning, so I didn't even, I just let it go to voicemail. A little while later, we had a break, and so I checked my voicemail, and it was our caseworker from Ohio. And she said, I've got some news about a child. You need to call me right away. And so I grabbed Gayla, and we stepped away, and we called, and she said, yes, we have a three-day-old child, and uh, we want to place this child with you, but you have to be here in five hours. And if, you don't, if you're not here in five hours, we'll have to place him somewhere else. Or this time, we didn't even know boy or girl. We just knew a child. And so we looked at each other. We talked to someone. They said, go, go, go. And so we quick changed our airline reservation. Somebody took us to the airport. 45 minutes later, we were at the airport. 15 minutes later, we were boarding a plane. Three-hour flight later, we were landing in Ohio. Someone uh, went and picked up Braden at the school, brought him to us, had to get us to our car because we didn't even have – we flew into a different airport in order to get back in time. And we got in the car, and we drove about two hours to be introduced to a little boy. And that little boy was placed into Gayla's arms. And at that very moment, she loved that child. There was no doubt in her mind that that was going to be her child. We still had many obstacles to overcome. There was a father that didn't even know he was a father at that point. There was a mother who could change her mind. There were all kinds of relatives that were involved. We had no idea what was going to be ahead. But at that moment in time, Gayla loved that child. I loved that child too, but she was the one holding him, so that's why I use her. Nine months later, we were able to adopt him, and he was legally and in all other ways our child. When we were flying from Dallas to Ohio, we knew that by then that uh, this was a boy. We didn't know anything else about him other than he was a boy and three days old. But we named that child on that flight. And the reason why we named that child is because for six years, my wife had prayed for a child. Prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed some more. And six years later... God had remembered. And the name Zachary means God has remembered. And so before we even landed, we knew that God had remembered us and had delivered that child to us. I tell all that story to bring you forward to about a year ago. We were sitting in our house, and we had never decided we wanted to make it a, a secret to him that he was adopted. But it's kind of hard to explain that to a child as they're growing up. You have to wait till they have some sort of concept of that. But one day we were talking about adoption. We have two of my sisters that live with us, both adopted. And so the word adoption, adopted, was, was being thrown around. And I turned to, to Zachary and all my wonderful wisdom as a father and said, um, Zachary, you know you're adopted, right? And he burst into tears. And I said, what's the matter? And he said, I don't know, but what you said made me sad. And I didn't know why. He didn't know why. But there was something about being adopted that was making him sad. And so for the next several hours, Gayla and I uh, assured him and held him and read to him and, and tried to, to retell the story to him and help him to understand that he was indeed loved. 
Then six months had gone by and everything was kind of back to normal. And he was playing with a little boy and the little boy was talking about how his mommy had carried him in his stomach, in her stomach for, for nine months. And Zachary said, I don't think that I was in my mommy's stomach. I don't remember her saying anything about that. And the little boy said, well, you were in somebody's stomach. They just didn't want you. <laughs> and so we had another opportunity to talk with him about assuring him of our love. God loves us so much more than what we can feel about Zachary. He loves us so much that we are no different to him than his son Jesus. There's no difference in his eyes between this child or that child. We are all his children, and the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and helps us to understand that love. And that's the first the most basic foundational principle of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. The second foundational principle is the Spirit being able to convict us of sin. The Spirit in John 16, 8 is described this way. When He comes, He will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. This was a great departure from the way things had been. Ever since Moses had received the law, uh, he got the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, and then the, the time that they spent in the desert wandering in the wilderness, they uh, also received the Levitical law, and there was all sorts of rules and regulations that God had given them for their safety, for their well-being. But they had become very accustomed to living in a very legalistic type of way. And so there were people who were the, uh, the tellers of the law and the keepers of the law. And they were very judgmental and passed judgment on people and, and uh, looked down their noses at them because of the fact that they might not know all of the laws as well as they did. Well, when Jesus was coming, <clears throat> the Pharisees at this time, were, who were the keepers of the law, were kind of held up on a pedestal because of the fact that they did know the law better than the, the common person. And so Jesus telling the people this was kind of a blow to the Pharisees, kind of a, 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 an insult to them almost that, hey, guess what? We're not going to need you to tell us what we're doing wrong any longer. Because when I leave, there's going to be a counselor that comes called the Holy Spirit that is going to guide us. Just like that AA counselor that I talked about before, the Holy Spirit is there to help us to stay on that right path. As we listen to the Holy Spirit, as we are guided by the Holy Spirit, we're able to, to adjust. We're able to keep our center and follow the path that God has laid out for us. In my world, in the work that I do, um, I, I work under rules that are placed on us by the government. Uh, there's a, a something called the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, CMS, that, that uh, oversees all of the work that my company does. Well, inside of my company, there are two different departments. There's sales, where I've worked, and then there is compliance. Compliance, I'm convinced, was created by the Pharisees. <laughs> because compliance department wants to take the rules, and they want to read them very literally, and to guide us very literally by all of the rules that are in the big Medicare marketing guidelines. However, in the sales world... We want to be guided by the spirit of the law. We want to be able to interpret things in a way that makes sense to us as salespeople. And so compliance and sales are often at odds with each other, trying to figure out what is going to work and what is going to uh, not work. 
And so in that particular realm, uh, we are acting as our own spirit. Well, guess what? We don't have to be our own spirit. God gave us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that is able to, to look into our hearts and be able to say, Chip, this is something that needs to be changed. And if I'm listening to the Spirit, then I'm able to be guided. I'm able to be molded. Just like what I was saying earlier, when you get saved, you don't all of a sudden have all the answers. You don't all of a sudden stop sinning. It's a progression. It's a progress process. You walk in it day by day, and the Holy Spirit guides you and helps to form you into the person that Jesus wants you to be. So this third thing that the Spirit does for us is that it leads us into truth. John chapter 16, verses 13 through 14 says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. For He will not speak on His own, but He will speak whatever He hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify Me because He will take from what is Mine and declare it to you. So the Holy Spirit is listening to one, one being and one being only, and that is to God the Father. And so anything he speaks to us is the truth. The truth is very important. Our world that we live in is full of deception. Completely, completely full of deception. I, I'm going to admit something to you. I occasionally get my news in the world from social media. I occasionally ask my wife, hey, what happened with such and such? Well, I don't know. Did you look on Facebook? Because if it's on Facebook, it's got to be true, right? If it's, if it's there on the Internet, there can't be anything there that's not verifiably true. We were on Facebook one day, and Gayla said, Chip, Will Smith died. I was like, what? And when I looked at it, I was like, oh, my, that's awful. Will Smith dies, dies in tragic accident making a movie. I was like, you know what? I think we ought to check that out. And so we started just... You know, Googling and looking other places on the Internet. And you're looking at the Internet for information about the Internet. But anyway, we, we decided that it was going to be good for us to, to check this out. And sure enough, Will Smith was alive and well. He was not, not dead, not injured in any kind of tragic accident. One of my favorite websites to go to is Snopes.com. Snopes.com, the reason why I like to go there is because it is a kind of a source of truth for all Internet fiction. <laughs> If you think that something is true, at least go to Snopes.com and check it out there before you post it or tell someone else about it. There's a lot of information out there that's not exactly true. You know, we, uh, we have proof that uh, um, Osama bin Laden and Barack Obama had dinner together at least four occasions. Eh, you know, there's no truth to it whatsoever, but somebody puts it on the Internet and all of a sudden people are like, Oh my goodness, did you see the president had dinner with Osama bin Laden? And it spreads and it becomes this big thing. And you say, you know what? I think I'll probably give him the benefit of the doubt for about two seconds. And I'll at least check into this. And somewhere way beneath the surface, we find out the truth. That's the world that we live in. It's full of deception. It's full of people telling us how things really are when we, as Christians, are able to turn to the Spirit and ask the Spirit is that really true? Is that really the way things are? Or is perhaps there's something else here? Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and the serpent came to them. And when he tempted Eve, he didn't 
make up some way out there fabrication and a lie. He took the truth and he bent it ever so slightly that it was just close enough to what God had said that he said, well, maybe that is what God said and began to believe the lie. If she had been able to turn to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, I'm being told this one thing. What do you say? What is the truth that you have for me? This is the third building block. This is when a little bit more relationship has been established that we can hear the truth from the Holy Spirit. And finally, the Spirit guides us in times of decision. I uh, was very impressed when my uh, oldest son, Braden, was in, I think, about the fifth grade. Uh, he had the D.A.R.E. program come to his his school. And I, I asked him to verify this the other day. I said, did they come like once or twice? He's like, no, they were there every week. And they were there week after week after week telling them their message. Their message was about saying no to drugs. And the reason why they came week after week after week after week is because like most human beings, we don't get something on the first try. It takes us a while before we hear Parents in the room, can you verify this, that your children typically don't obey you the very first time you ever tell them something? Yeah. It's not just my kids, is it? Everybody else the same way? Okay. Thought maybe it was just me for the moment. But we have to hear things again and again. The voice of the Spirit is not something that we can just hear once and immediately know exactly that it's the voice of the Spirit. We have to listen and listen and listen over and over again. If I were to bring up my family right here and I was to invite three other men to, to up onto the stage and we were all to start talking, I imagine my family could probably pick out my voice among the other four because they know my voice because I talk to them every day. I talk a lot. Yeah, getting lots of nods from over there. Um, I am the world's worst telephone communicator in the entire world. I don't like to talk on the phone a whole lot. We lived out of state for 13 years. I could probably count on my appendages the number of times that I actually called my dad. One time, it had probably been nine months or more since I had talked with him. I know, I'm a bad son. But it had been a long time since I talked to him. And I called him up, and he answered the phone. Hello, this is Philip Johnston. And I said, hey. He said, who is this? I said, this is Chip. Who? Your son, Philip Johnson Jr., you know, the one that you named after yourself. Oh, hey, I didn't recognize your voice. Of course, he didn't recognize my voice. I hadn't talked to him in nine months. When we go a long time distancing ourselves from God, we're not going to be able to hear from him clearly. We're not going to recognize his voice over all the other voices out there. We may understand he loves us. We may even follow his plan for us pretty closely. But we might not hear the truth, and we certainly may not hear from him in those big times of decision if we're not talking to him regularly about all of the things in our lives. He's your father. We're his children. He wants to talk to you. Now that I live here, we talk a little more frequently, right? Yeah. My dad's here in the audience. We probably talk at least once a week, if not by text or email on the phone in person. We have lots of ways to communicate. And so we're able to keep our relationship going. I'm able to talk to him about things going on in my life. 
hey, Dad, there's a job I'm considering. Here's what it's about. What do you think? You know, used to, he would give a lot more opinion than he does now. I think maybe as he's seen me make decisions in my life, he's giving a lot less opinion, or maybe I'm just maturing and his opinions agree with mine more often. But our lives are a communication with God. They are a progression, a foundational principle built step by step by step. In just a moment, we're going to have an opportunity for a time of reflection, a time of decision, and a time of commitment. We're going to have communion available, Lord's Supper, it will be here. Sometimes people just like to take communion, but I'm going to ask you today that if you've really got something that is touching your heart today, that as you take that communion, that that be your commitment to God to try to listen to Him more. To try to listen to Him more in your life and all of the decisions that you make and all of the steps that you take. Try to recognize that, okay, this is God's way of letting me know He loves me. Maybe another day you're thinking and praying and all of a sudden you realize, you know what? This is Him getting me back on track. Then maybe another day you're realizing, wow, the Spirit is leading me to truth. And before you know it, you're going to be hearing His voice in all of those times of decision. It starts today. I imagine in a group.